The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, God's Word. Let's go. All right, let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Just answer it kind of in your own mind. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Now, the word Christian, and and that's what I want you to focus on, first appears in history. The first time it's ever used, not surprisingly, is in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 26, where it says to us that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word literally means little Christ. And originally, the sense is that it was a bit of a derogatory term. All oh, those Christians, those little, those little Jesus people. They want to be like Jesus. They want to be little Jesuses. It was a little bit of an insult, but then it eventually came to not be used as an insult, but the believers took it upon themselves to say, no, that's what we are. That's exactly what we are. Uh, But the challenge is the word after 2,000 years of use really has been misused to describe things that are not Christian at all. It has been overused to the point which it now is kind of lacking meaning. And so what we do today to make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we use the word Christian, what we do is we we put an adjective in front of it in order to describe the kind of Christian that we're talking about, what we actually mean by using the word. And so, let me give you some examples. We might talk about a passionate Christian, or we might talk about an evangelical Christian, or we might talk about an all-in Christian. Those are some positive ones. There's some negative ones, because we could also talk about a, a just he's a cultural Christian, or, or a lapsed Christian, or a half-hearted Christian. And, and when we put the adjective in front of it, then we begin to see, oh yeah, Christian can mean a lot of different things. And we have to qualify it with the modifier. And so if the word is to mean anything to us who would claim it as our own, since it is our word and it's found in the Bible that we read and believe, if we would claim it as our own, then we need to look to the word of God to see what exactly the Bible says about being a Christian. In other words, what are the qualifiers or the, metaf- or the, the um, modifiers or the adjectives that we would put in front of Christian to determine exactly what we need to be? Now, what's really important in this process, I need to say, is that we avoid the doing part of it and we focus instead on the being part. What I mean by that is that sometimes we can do activities, we can be busy about something and give the appearance of being something, but internally it isn't true. And so I would just say this, to capture that thought, it's always, always character before conduct. And if you lock down the character, the conduct will always follow. But sometimes the conduct is not a reflector of what's really true in the character. So character before conduct, while we're going to describe what it means to be a Christian, we need to focus on the character aspects of what that really is. And we're going to spend our time over the next five weeks primarily in the book of 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul describes for us in various passages 
uh, what it really means to be the kind of Christian that God wants us to be, the kind of Christian we should want to be, what we're calling in this series a 5G Christian who is gracious and generous and growing and grateful and glorifying of God by being all of those things. And we're going to get started on today by looking at the first G, which is gracious. Are you a gracious Christian? Sound good? Everybody know where we're going? Five weeks? Why don't we pray uh, to uh, set aside this time for the Lord? Father, we have um, set apart this time um, for you, Lord, to hear from you. And God, we would plead with you right now to speak to us. Uh, Help us in these weeks to know uh, that uh, we really have been made for this, made to be these kinds of disciples, made to be followers of yours who reflect in full measure the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so speak and work in this room, Father, in a way that we we can't do it for ourselves. God, these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get at this. I'm a gracious Christian when... I receive favor from God with grace. God, let me say it this way, God gives us grace. God gives us his grace. We receive that grace graciously. We receive it from him respectful of who he is and with gratitude in our hearts toward him, we want to receive his grace graciously. And that's going to make a lot more sense as we uh, begin reading the passage of first, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, the first four verses here then, this rather unique experience that Paul had. He writes, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, by the way, he's speaking in third person about himself now, This is an experience that he had, but for whatever reason, Paul is communicating it to us as if it's someone else. But I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, I think you would agree with me that this is a rather unique experience that Paul is having here. He he, um, had the privilege or the blessing of going from here in this life to be able to see heaven. I mean, that's a unique experience, wouldn't you agree? And, and, And I know that there are some people today who might claim to have this experience, but you're gonna see a pretty big difference between the experience that Paul had, and by the way, a couple of other names that come to mind in the scriptures of people who had this experience would be Isaiah, who had this experience of going to the throne room of God. The apostle John had it as he was receiving the revelation of the last book of the Bible. These uh, three men all had this experience of going and seeing heaven. Paul doesn't know if he's actually there or if it's in a vision. But it's overwhelming to him. But the people today who have these uh, quote-unquote near-death experiences or they go to heaven and they come back, really, they don't react at all like Isaiah or John or Paul who end up, to use the word of Isaiah, that he just becomes undone by the experience. The people today, they're not undone at all. They're signing book deals and looking for movie deals. 
They're all about getting the glory and profiting off of it. And that's what leads me to be believe. They've never been there. Because when you go there and you come back, you're wrecked. And, and, and so Paul has this experience. And he says, I was transported in some way to paradise. I saw things that were either indescribable or that he was prevented by God from describing and you might imagine that having such an experience might really th- make you think that you're something. You know? Of all the people in the world, I'm so special to God that I got to go to heaven and see it and come back here. Most people that go to heaven just stay there. That's everyone else's experience, but I got to go and come back. I must really be something. You can imagine how Paul might have thought that. Not many people get to go and do that, but the, the reality is that his experience was an act of grace. This is what I want us to see. It was an act of grace on God's part that Paul didn't deserve the experience. Paul didn't, by anything he had done, he didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. God was simply blessing the apostle by showing him something that you don't normally get to see until you go there. I think it's true, but let me ask you the question, true or false, if God were to show up right now and come to you this morning and just say, hey, look, you wanna beg the rest of the service and come to heaven with me and just take a look around and come back at the end of the service? How many people are in on that? Well, we're totally, see ya, right, see ya, I'm out. We would totally seize upon that, but we would have to understand, like Paul understood, that that wasn't because of anything we did, that was just a free gift from God. Come and see heaven and I'll send you back. What a blessing for us, but none of us would think, I deserve this, or that I had done enough things for the Lord that I would have earned it. Paul knew he didn't merit the experience, he knew that he, like you and me, and this is what one commentator said, I love this little phrase, we are weak, we are a weak vessel of clay that can only be sustained by the grace of God. That's who we are. A weak vessel of clay that can only be sustained by the glory of God. And so, and so Paul here, he's building this argument and he's talking about boasting in the very first line of, of chapter 12. And if we were to read all of 2 Corinthians and kind of get the full scope of everything he's saying in this letter, we would understand that a lot of what he's doing in the letter is talking about the stupidity of boasting about anything because everything we have is a grace gift from God, something we don't deserve and can't earn. So he, so he talks about boasting here. He says, verse one, notice, I must go on boasting. He's saying it in this mocking way. Because he goes on to say there's nothing to be gained by boasting. When God shows his favor towards you, when he shows his favor toward undeserving people, we're simply to receive it graciously. Thank you, Lord, that you saw fit to bless me in this way. I know I don't deserve it. That's all it is. That's what it means to receive his grace. Whatever he sends your way, when you boast in anything, I mean, if you get to the point where you think, you know, I really earned this. I did this. I worked hard for this. You know, I've been a good person. I think I deserve this blessing from God. Whenever we go down that road at all, we demonstrate we know nothing about the grace of God. 
And yet we've still received the grace. It's just that, well, we haven't received it graciously. We haven't received it as it ought to be received, as a gift from the Lord, because we're undeserving of all he's given to us. Now listen, that, that point right there that we don't deserve anything and God's grace comes to us and we should receive it graciously, that point right there is a necessary foundation to become first a gracious Christian. But we have to understand in order to be the 5G Christian, everything else in the city, it, it, in, in the series, it, it hinges on this, that we would receive God's grace with grace. Amen? All right, that's the starting point. Now, if we keep reading, you're going to see that the extraordinary experience of seeing heaven, it's a blessing, it's a blessing, but we're going to see it was actually something that was designed to crush Paul. And far from being able to come back and boast about, hey, look, guys, I got to go to heaven. I got to go there. I got to see it. It's pretty dang awesome. Far from being able to do that, the experience actually made Paul's life more challenging, more painful. Now, would you say that you would be ready to receive that from the Lord? A blessing that ends up being something that hinders you and hurts you and makes your life more challenging. Would you, would you be willing to say that this morning? You know, and I, I sensed the hesit hesitancy in the room and I anticipated it because when I was writing this, I was going, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Am I really willing to go to the Lord and say, just whatever you have for me, just send it, even if it makes my earthly life more difficult? Because that's where we're going with this. When I'm a gracious Christian, I receive adversity, adversity from God with grace. You can see how this is the other side of the coin. Let's keep reading verse five. On behalf of this man... I will boast, but on my, on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I receive adversity from God with grace. Why would I do that? Because God, in, with his perspective on things, always, always, always has your best interest at heart. Always. 
And in the wake of his experience in paradise, what Paul receives, he gets to go to heaven. That's awesome. I'm willing to receive all that grace from God, all the good things, all the blessings he wants to throw in my life. I'm willing to receive all of that. But then in the wake of that, he has this thorn in the flesh, what the scriptures describe as a messenger from Satan. In other words, something happened. We have no specifics. We don't know what it is. But when he came back from heaven, he wasn't right. Something was off. And not only did Paul know that and experience it and have it to bear, but it seems like it, whatever it was, it was pretty obvious to everyone else too that he now had this, this disability or this, or this hindrance in his life or something that made his life and ministry more difficult. The text says that it, would, it was harassing him, that it, that it would hinder him, that it exposed his weakness. And I, I, at this point, I just ask, how can that be? How can, how can it be that I can say that God has your best interest at heart, but then he actually allows and sends these thorns in the flesh into our lives, that he actually allows a messenger of Satan to hurt and harass us? How can those two things be true? We, we, we don't even understand exposing weakness as being something that could possibly be good. I mean, parents in the room, we taught our kids, be strong. Stand up for yourself. Don't show weakness. Don't show vulnerability. There's a problem on the playground. You gotta stand up for yourself. The world's message is this be strong, be your own person kind of message and it just flies in the face of everything God is saying here where now it's all about exposing weakness. That's the way God parents us. It's a bit shocking. Paul receives his thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan to harass and hinder him. It exposes his weakness, but, but, don't miss this part. It leads him to a greater understanding and experience of God's power in his life and ministry. And that deeper experience would not have been possible apart from the thorn in the flesh. God wanted Paul to experience the fullness of who he is. And so, can you see God's grace in that? The gift that God is giving to him of himself, of his power? Maybe, maybe I, I have it in my mind that this is what's happening. Okay, if you rewind the whole thing to before he goes to heaven. I imagine Paul, because I believe he was like such a, a godly man, and we have the scriptures that just expose his heart and his his, his dramatic conversion before the Lord and how he became a believer and what he was before and then the passion that he has for the Lord and for the mission, right? You see all of that and you know that Paul's a godly man. We'd love to spend some time with him. So, so then I can just imagine before he ever got to heaven and he, he's having some success as an apostle, as a leader, sure the government authorities are kind of breathing down his neck and he goes through a lot of different persecutions and the Jewish leaders in the synagogues where he goes are not happy about him, that's true. But in, in the towns where he goes, he goes and he preaches the gospel and people become believers and he gathers them together and he raises up leaders and he plants a church and he goes to the next town 
and then the, he writes a letter back to them and they write a letter to him and there's just lots of blessing going back. Would you agree with me? The apostle Paul was highly esteemed among the people who were the followers of Jesus Christ. Highly esteemed. And so you can imagine in light of that, I just, this is what I picture. So he gets down on his knees one night beside his bed and he's just having his time with the Lord, you know? And he's praying and he's just saying, God, you've given me so much success. Thank you so much for the way you're using me, but I feel in my life just a little creeping pride. Just a little bit of a sense inside of me that I might be able to take some credit for any of this. And the way the people speak about me and the way they esteem me and love me, Father, I just feel like I don't want to steal any glory from you. So God, that's the observation. Then he prays the prayer. So God, would you just crush any pride in me? Would you just make sure that I don't become conceited about any of this? You know, in Jesus' name, amen. And he goes and he climbs into his bed and he goes to sleep. And God goes, I heard that prayer. I'm willing to answer it. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Oh, you're not sure right now. Because <laughs> you know where this is going. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Paul wanted God to answer that prayer that he wouldn't be conceited. So God says, you know what I'm going to do, Paul? I'm going to answer that prayer. You don't want to be conceited. You don't want to be filled with pride. I'm going to take you to the, to the pinnacle of everything, the eternal pinnacle of all things, heaven. No sin there, the very presence of God, the throne room of God, the angels of God are there. I'm gonna show you the whole thing. You're gonna go to the very top, then I'm gonna send you back and it's gonna take care of any business of being conceited. And you're never gonna have a prideful bone in your body from this day forward. But it's gonna be painful. Now, 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 listen, how, how do we despise when, when God answers our prayers? God, I want to know you more. God, I want to grow. God, I, I want to sense your presence. I want to know you're here. I want to see your power in my life. If you've ever prayed any prayer like that, be prepared for God to answer it. And receive adversity from God with grace. And not that I would compare my situation to Paul's, but I am too aware, and many of you are as well, of how trials and setbacks and hardships and struggles do their perfect work in your life. I know the depth of understanding that I now have that I would not have if I had not gone through the more darker days of my life that having gone through some very significant trials, I mean, it was at those times that I, I felt closest to God. That, that I, there's things in his word that I never saw before. I had read them. I would even studied them. But then having gone through the trials, you look back and you go, the richness of what God has said to me, the promises that he's delivered on, that I now know, not just in my head, but in my heart and experientially. Seems like those things only happen in the trials, not in the blessings. And so this is, this is the crazy counsel that I want to give you right now. Just write this down, my pastor's crazy. Just write that down. But maybe the thing you should pray for 
is not ease, but challenge. Would you pray, God, show me more of yourself. Show me more of your power. Make me more like your son. Here's the crazy part. By whatever means necessary. That's the prayer. And then watch for his sufficient grace to be poured out in your life so that you can say like Paul did. Now let's look at verses 9 and 10. Notice what he said. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in, what's the word? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Not my strengths, not my gifts, not what I'm good at. Those aren't the things I boast in. But I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with... Pause. What are you content with? I'm, I'm content with a spouse who loves me. I'm content with three kids who are amazing, uh, four now. I'm content with the house I live in and the neighborhood and the city I get to live in. I'm content that I have money in my bank account, that we're healthy. I'm content with all of these things. And we often, that's the way we think. We, we look at the contentment thing and we list all the great things that are going on in our lives. These things make me happy. <laughs> but that's not what Paul says. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with, what am I content with? Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm content with all the difficult things in my life. Why? Because they're evidences of God's grace, and they draw me closer to himself. And I get to experience his power. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Say that with me. When I am weak, then I am strong. When Cheryl was in her teen years, uh, her pastor uh, was a man by the name of Ernie Brubaker. And um, if that name sounds familiar, that's uh, Dan's uncle. And uh, Ernie and his wife, uh, Jean. Jean, in fact, was someone that Cheryl watched very closely through her teen years and Jean is such a model of Christ's likeness and was such a great model of a pastor's wife that that's really the reason why Cheryl wanted to go to Bible college and find a young guy that wanted to be a pastor and marry him so she could be a pastor's wife. That was really the calling that was on her life. Uh, Ernie, I believe, baptized you when you were 16. And so this couple, just so special uh, to Cheryl, really, and in the history of our family. Uh, the thing is that Ernie uh, went on from the church that Cheryl uh, grew up in and uh, ended up in Pembroke, Ontario, and at the young age of 66, still very active as a pastor, still leading his church so well. But his health left him quickly, really, at the age of 62, and he lingered on from 62 to 66. He lingered on, unable to do much for himself. His life work as a pastor was taken from him and he was a shut-in in his own home and cared for for three and a half years by his devoted wife. Ernie said in his dying days, and this is really why I've told you about him, 
Ernie said this in his dying days. I've never been weaker physically and I've never been stronger spiritually. When I am weak, then I am strong. Receive adversity from God with grace. Amen? I'm a gracious Christian. When I receive favor from God with grace, I receive the adversity from God with grace, and then this, I freely dispense grace to others. Now you'll notice that there's the whole positive side of this. God's grace comes to us with glorious blessings, like Paul got to see heaven. But then it comes with this kind of more negative side, at least the way that we see it, in that there's also sometimes adversity and trial attached to that. But in those first two points that we've just looked at, the whole thing is about us having the right vertical perspective on what God is doing in our lives. He's pouring this grace down on us in the good things and in the more difficult things. It's all coming down to us from God and we need to work it out with him vertically. But then, now look at this. There's a horizontal aspect to this. Will we become the conduits of God's grace to others? Will you freely dispense God's grace to those around you? And one of the best passages to see God's grace in our lives is in Ephesians chapter four. If you haven't already turned there, let's get to that passage, Ephesians chapter four. And I have in my mind, as you're turning here, I just have in my mind a vending machine. Now, it's grace, so the vending machine doesn't cost anything, okay? You just step up to it, and then you take what you need. Is it, is it pop? Is it chips? Is it a chocolate bar? Is it a vending machine? Just dispensing all kinds of different things. And would you agree with me that there are a lot of different situations that you might come across in life where you need God's grace to flow out from you to other people? Yes? Just different kinds of situations. And think about that vending machine. You're the vending machine. It doesn't cost anybody anything because it's grace. But, but depending on the situation, you're going to be dispensing different things to different people. And so we w- want to look at that. Notice um, uh, verses 17 through 24. Not going to look at these, but Paul's really just saying, uh, when you're a gracious Christian, a grace-filled Christian, there's a lot of things that are not true about you anymore. So you can study that on your own. But then verse 25, we pick it up. He says this, therefore, instead of that, let each one of you dispense grace or be gracious like this. So here's five ways to dispense grace to others. Okay, you're gonna jot these down. Five ways to dispense grace to others. Uh, The first uh, that Paul mentions here is uh, the truth embodied in your life dispenses grace to others. Now we see this in verse 25. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And if you go back to verse 15, you can just reference this, Ephesians 4, 15, where he says that we are to be speaking the truth in love. And the crazy thing about this little speaking the truth phrase is, is that speaking isn't actually, the word speaking is not actually in the original language text. But there's not really a great English language word to describe what exactly is going on with this word, this phrase, speaking the truth. We don't have an English equivalent for it, but if we were to have one, this is is how it would read, um, that, that let each one of you truth with their neighbor. Or speaking the truth would become truthing. Are you truthing? Are you truthing one another? In other words, is the, is the truth of God's word so 
evident in your life, so saturating your life that, that everything that you do, every conversation that you have, every action that you take, all of the ways that you relate to one another, all of that is saturated with the truth. It embodies the truth of God's word. You are 100% living out the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Are you truthing? Living out the truth, having a life that embodies the truth. And Jesus, of course, was described in John chapter 1, verse 14, as being full of grace and full of... He was 100% full of both of those things. That, of course, is what we're also aiming for in our own lives. So this really means loving the truth and sharing the truth and holding the truth of God's word and of his kingdom in your lives, in your hearts. It's a truth in an environment of love. Again, verse 15 points us in that direction means I tell you the truth because I love you and that I convey the truth to you in a loving way with care and with concern. That's what a gracious Christian does. And that, of course, affects all the other things that we're going to talk about here, other ways that we dispense grace to one another. So truth embodied, then look at this one, anger controlled. <coughs> Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There's two kinds of anger that really come out in this verse. There's definitely a time to be angry about sin and injustice, amen? There's a time to be angry about sin and injustice. In this past week, a certain presidential candidate said some things about women that should make every person in this room who loves Jesus Christ should make your blood boil. There's never a proper occasion in any room where the things that were said about women should be said. That women should not be exploited and should not be demeaned and should not be denigrated in this way. We should be angry about that. That's, that's righteous indignation and it has a strong place in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's what he says. Be angry, but don't sin when you're angry. Be angry, in other words, about the right things. Then he says, but obviously, there are some times when we get angry when it's not appropriate and it's not based in righteousness. I don't know if that ever happens to you. It happens once in a while to me. Do not, he says, when that happens, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So when you, you are angry and you've considered your motives and you know that it's not appropriate anger, that it's more selfish, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on that. In other words, resolve that anger issue in your life ASAP. Get that dealt with right away. Don't let the sun go down on it. Don't let another day start without you resolving that issue that's going on in your life. And so how can I do that? How can I deal with the anger? And some people deal with anger more than others. But how can I deal with that? Well, I got like kind of a three-step process for that. And the, the first is this, that the majority of things that cause you anger, I hope you can just let roll off your back. That would be the best way, don't you think? How many people here would just say that traffic makes you angry? Just raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. I'm raising my hand. I see that hand. 
So, so here's, what, here was, here's what happened. So a couple weeks ago, Cheryl and I were in Chicago. Chicago's traffic's insane. And we were taking an Uber from uh, O'Hare down into the city, and we got this guy named Arvid, 77 years old, and um, his, his uh, little Toyota, he, com- he comes and gets us, and we're driving down, we've got to drive through the whole city, get downtown. And um, Arvid owned cab companies kind of in his working days, and he kind of retired, and his wife said, you know, I think you should go back driving again. And so... <laughs> Arvid, Arvid was like super talkative. I felt like we were family by the end of it. So I'm always looking, I don't know if this is true for you, but when you have a sin issue, you're always looking for other people that share your sin issue so that you can commiserate together, true or false. So, so I'm thinking, this guy's driven all his life in Chicago. He must hate traffic as much as I do. I'm trying to make conversation. By this time, he already knows I'm a pastor. And so um, I'm saying, man, does the, does the traffic ever frustrate you? I think it was right after someone cut him off. And he's like, you know, I just, I just realized there's no point. There's no point. It's always going to be this way, and I just need to drive calmly and at my speed and not really let any of that ever bother me. And then that, like, one-hour trip from O'Hare to our hotel, like, he just never, there was nothing. There was all kinds of occasions where I would have been, you know, shaking my fist and having conversations. I always have, I, I have a full-on conversation with the other drivers around me while I'm driving. Is that true for you, too? Just I'm always talking to them. They can't hear me. That's better <laughs> that they can't hear me. But, but, but here's Arvid. He never lets it bother him. He's just like the example. Here I am, the pastor, trying to tell him about Jesus. And he's all like, yeah, I got some things worked out better than you do. Because <laughs> he just let it all roll off his back. And some of us would do very well to just start with that. And then when we can't, obviously, and some anger issue is still gripping us and I can't just leave it alone, then I really need to go to the Lord with that, right? I need to go to the Lord. And I, and I need to take it to him and I need to surrender it to him and God help me not to be angry here and to release this offense to you. And if that's not working, then in the spirit of Matthew 18, if this is a brother in Christ, then a brother or sister, then you need to go and resolve it uh, biblically to deal with the anger. But the point Paul is making here, when you're a gracious Christian, you don't let the sun go down in your anger. You deal with everything quickly. All right? And we want to do that because we want to shut the devil down. You see that right there. So it's in these situations with our anger, we're just going to say it's grace, 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 coming out of that vending machine, just dispensing grace to one another. Amen? For sure. All right, so that's um, truth embodied, which helps us with anger controlled. And then another way we dispense grace here, uh, work performed. We'll just go real quickly through this one, Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I don't know if this was a problem in Ephesus, but we steal when we take anything that is due to another or something that belongs to another. And Paul is telling us here to work hard for what we have, not to take any shortcuts, no uh, get-rich-quick schemes, no stealing. Work hard and therefore, listen, you work hard so you don't steal from your employer. If you're the employer, you don't steal from your employees. You don't steal from the government in how you do your taxes. You don't steal from your family. You don't steal from the church. You don't steal from friends. You don't steal. You work hard for what you have. And this goes beyond money and goods to include time and attention. When we work hard, that is a gracious act toward others. 
It's a conduit of God's grace. Here's the fourth one, encouragement delivered. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And the corruption here really is any self-centered communication that undermines oneness in the church. I gossip about you. I say untrue things about you. I slander you. I try to impugn your character or make myself look good by what I know and communicate to others. I share prayer requests with others. Have you heard about so-and-so? We need to pray for them because such-and-such is going on in their life. And really, I'm not that concerned about prayer. I'm just concerned that other people know that I know. And I don't care how it reflects on you. That's all corrupting talk. I'm, I'm always negative. I'm, I see the glass is half empty and I'm not afraid to tell you. I'm critical. I rarely affirm, but I tear down. And can you see that there's no room for that in the life of a gracious Christian? Gracious words instead are thank you for doing that. I see what God is doing in your life. It's awesome. I'm so encouraged by you. Thank you. Thank you. That we pour out blessing with our words and we build people up rather than tearing them down. Encouragement delivered. And then finally this one, maybe the hardest, forgiveness granted. Verses 30 and 32, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Here it is, the key to it all. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. In fact, forgiveness is like the top of this. And if you look at some of those, those things that he mentions early, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, all of that kind of represents a downward spiral into a pit that starts with something happened and you didn't forgive. And that's where you've ended up. You might say, like, I've had some hard things happen in my life and I've had to forgive some people and, and I find forgiveness really difficult. And I, I, I get that. You might wonder, how do I know when I've really forgiven someone? Have you ever wondered that? How do I know when I've really gotten to the place where I've forgiven someone? Well, here it is. Uh, the first is, I know when I've forgiven. When I'm done bringing it up with you, I'm done bringing it up with others, and I'm done bringing it up with myself. You see, I haven't forgiven the offense, even if I've said to you, I forgive you, even if I say that, but then I keep bringing it up with you. Hey, remember that time you hurt me? Remember that offense? Or I do it in more subtle ways, but I keep bringing it up? I mean, if you keep bringing it up, then you haven't forgiven, even though you may have said, I've forgiven you. And maybe you get past that and you're not bringing it up with the offender anymore, but you're bringing it up with other people, with your friends, with your mutual friends, with other members of your family. Oh, that time that so-and-so did such and such to me. I mean, I just can't ever forget that. I can't give that up. And it puts a wedge between the relationship and it really indicates you haven't gotten to the place of forgiveness. Or maybe you're not mentioning it to the person who offended you and you've gotten past that and you're not talking to anybody else about it, but internally you can't let it go and you keep dwelling on it and thinking about it. Now you can see a progression in all of that. 
that when you can finally get to the place where you're not bringing it up with them and you're not bringing it up with others and you're no longer even thinking about it, then you know, I've arrived at the place of forgiveness. And at any stage along the way, the only one that it's appropriate to talk to about any of this is the Lord. God, help me not bring it up with them anymore. God, help me not to talk to others about it. God, please take it away from me so that I'm not even thinking about it anymore so that I can truly get to this place of forgiveness. We wanna get to the place where God gets with us, where he takes our sins and he removes those sins from us as far as the east is from the west. God removes that from us. I think about Jesus on the cross and what he did for us when he said, when he said the words, it is finished. You know what he meant, at least in part by that was, it's finished, I'm not bringing it up anymore. It's paid in full. We don't ever need to bring those sins up again. And every sin that you've ever committed that you found the forgiveness for, please understand, God is never bringing that sin up against you again. It's finished. We need to get to that place with one another. I saw this tweet from Nikki Gumbel, the founder of uh, the Alpha Groups. He said this, the first to apologize is the bravest, the first to forgive is the strongest, and the first to forget is the happiest. Amen? Let's get to that place. That's grace. That's the gracious Christian. Okay. Does that sound good? That's the first one. Grace is down. That's one of five, four more to come in this important series. And you and I really are made for this. We're made to be gracious Christians. The key verse for this entire series is Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Before we can get to the good works, we need to be his workmanship. And part of that being the 5G Christian, part of that is being a gracious Christian. So God, make that true in our lives. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Help us to be gracious, grace-filled, grace-dispensing Christians, fully reflecting the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for meeting with us. Receive now our praise as we think further about your grace. Help us to live this out this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.